0: Gresham College presents The Shape of Things to Come How Our Changing Demographic Structure Will Shape Future Society and Health by Professor Christopher Whitty Visiting Professor of Public Health It's a great pleasure to give this talk and particularly to give it, in fact, at Gresham College. Uh, One of the founders of uh, demography, which is what I'm going to be talking about today, uh, was one of the early Gresham professors, uh, in his case, uh, William Petty, um, Gresham professor of music, Uh, but he was also a physician, astronomer, linguist, economist, naval architect, farmer, MP, and fellow of the Royal Society. He was a near contemporary of Christopher Wren, another Gresham Professor in that case, in his case of astronomy, uh, and I think, uh, although Professor Cox and various other Gresham Professors are immensely distinguished, I think we have to accept they don't make professors, Gresham Professors the way they used to. <laughs> I'm going to start off with two slides from the first talk I gave in this series uh, to explain why how this sort of sequence moves on from the first talk I gave, which was to explain that. In, around the world, mortality is increasingly being concentrated in the first 28 days of life, and then not until late old age. Uh, the first one uh, is from the UK, uh, well, from England and Wales more specifically. And I think it's, uh, the, this is the, age, the mortality by age with less than one right down at the bottom, up to over 85 up at the top. Uh, and what it looked like in 1968... Uh, which was after some of you were born, um, and what it looks like uh, roughly now. And what you can see uh, is that uh, the the age at which people died has gradually moved up, particularly actually among men, largely due to reductions in smoking, Uh, and this uh, increase in age of mortality is uh, continuing and is likely to continue for the rest of at least all of our lifetimes. The probability is, uh, the the, um, ONS thinks, that the average child born in this year will, if they're a girl, reach 94 years of age, this is the average person, and if they're a boy, 91. So that is the direction for children born today. If you had a grandchild or child born in this year, that's what you would expect. Alongside this has been an enormously welcome Change in the mortality among children around the world, including in the UK and European countries, northern countries like the USA, but much more startlingly actually in Africa and Asia. And again, this is the second slide from my previous talk. Uh, This is a quotation, one of my favorite ones from The Economist. Africa is experiencing some of the biggest falls in child mortality ever seen anywhere. And the same has been true uh, to a slightly slower degree, but to a really very considerable degree, in Asia and Latin America as well. There are multiple reasons for this, and if people are interested in this, you didn't go to my last talk. It's all online. Fantastic. It's free to all users. Um, but the, these include better nutrition, better housing, broad, broadly better health services, vaccinations... A whole series of things, each one of which contributes a small amount, but the net effect of which has been to lead to a very dramatic reduction in childhood mortality. And this is irreversible. This is a phenomenal gift from our generation the last generation to future generations. This is something uh, which I think we can collectively, as a generation, take a lot of pride in. Now, those make two of what I have for convenience, divided into four major drivers of mortality, of, of, of uh, demography dem- and demographic change. So rapidly falling child mortality, particularly in poorer countries, and rising a- a- age of mortality in all countries, but in particular in more developed countries. The third big medical issue is fertility. The number of children that women have on average across a generation. And one of the things which is really striking in every country in the world, in every social and religious and economic group, is that when, ch- when the countries develop, women get education, and contraception is widely available, numbers of children per woman drop. That is true everywhere, and it is largely irreversible. There is no example that I have found of any generation of women who have access to contraception having more children than their mothers did. So, this is a one way door. Over the last 15 to 20 years, and I'll show some of the numbers on this, the fertility around the world has substantially reduced. Um, and uh, this largely due to availability of contraception and socioeconomic development. And now we've got to a situation where there are quite a large number of what are called low fertility countries, uh, including many European countries. I'm about to show this, where in fact there are fewer children per mother than, the, than is the replacement number. The replacement number being just above two. So there are many countries in Europe and in other, other parts, Asia, increasingly Latin America, where that's the that's the case. So falling child mortality. Rising age of adults dying and then the, uh, and fertility are the three big uh, medical drivers, and the fourth one, which I'm not going to talk very much about because it's not a medical issue, but it is an issue, uh, the, probably the least important of these, is migration, except in a few particular countries. Now in this talk I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm going to go have three sections to this, the first of which I'm going to talk about the general drivers and uh, the population of the world as a whole, really just to get the concepts uh, all agreed. For many of you this will be old hat, Uh, for some it may be new. I'm then going to move on to looking at the international picture in terms of demographic structure and then I'm going to look specifically at the UK largely because it's a UK audience, but for those watching online, it's a very good example of a northern uh, wealthy country and, and where things are going. Now, for almost every country, this is a stylized um, uh, graph, but for almost every country, there is what's called the demographic transition. And in demographic transition, what, the, what happens first is you get a reduction in the death rate. That's the first major effect. There is then quite a significant lag time after which you start to get a fall in the birth rate. Now, during this time, the number of people in the country explodes. Then you have a situation uh, where the birth rate is falling quite rapidly, but the the population size continues to rise because it's got momentum. These people are living all the way through to their older age. And over a period of some decades, long or short, depending on how rapid the transition is, you move from a very stable situation with a relatively small population, very high child mortality, large fertility, through to a situation of low fertility, few children per mother, very low mortality, and a much older population. And in, during the period between those, the population will get a lot larger in that country. Virtually every country which has reached this point, which most will, have gone through that transition. That is a demographic transition. Now, when we're looking at the fertility declines, I think sometimes people think that this is going very slowly. These are quite a number of important countries. The dotted ones are in Africa. Uh, The solid uh, ones are in in Asia. And the uh, dashed lines are in Latin America, primarily. Uh, These are countries which, um, over the last uh, 20 years, um, the fertility has dropped by 30% or more. So as countries develop, there is extremely rapid change once the child mortality has fallen to numbers of children going down very fast. It hasn't happened absolutely everywhere. There are a few countries, uh, Nigeria, for example, where it's an awful lot slower. But in the great majority of countries in every continent, uh, this, this transition is now extremely fast and, as I say, will be irreversible. And We've now reached the stage, and I've chosen... Uh, Europe, to illustrate this, where there are large parts of the world where there are many fewer children being born than there are uh, per woman than you would expect, basically where we are below the point of replacement fertility. So these are uh, Northern Europe, Western European countries. Uh, this, a, this two. so if you, have to, you have to be just above two to get a replacement fertility rate. Most countries in Europe are either at two a bit below two, or even in the case of, for example, Germany, Austria, and uh, Lithuania, uh, actually below 1.5. These populations are actually going to shrink. The same is true in southern Europe. And as I go on to show you, in southern Europe, this has been a dramatic and very rapid process, and the implications of this are going to be quite profound. So the idea that the population, which I think a lot of people have if they read the wrong sorts of newspapers, that the population is irreversibly increasing absolutely everywhere and we're all going to die. Uh, well, we are all going to die, obviously, but this is, not, uh, this is not going to be the driver of it. When we look at fertility around the world, um, the darker the colour, uh, the, the higher the fertility rate at this point in time. And actually what you see is fertility rates are green and blue is essentially either at or below Uh, replacement rates. The great majority of the world is now green or blue. Only really in Africa are there a large number of countries which have got fertility rates significantly above replacement levels. And that is changing very rapidly. What this means is that the population of the world is going to continue to grow uh, up to the end of this century. I think most people are pretty confident about that, largely because people live longer, not because necessarily large numbers of people additionally are being born. Only in one continent do we think that at the end of uh, of this century will there still be some population growth. That's Africa. In most of the others it will either be stable or dropping. So probably by the time any of your grandchildren, if you have them, uh, reach the end of their lives, the population of the world will have stabilised and will probably be shrinking. Now, I don't particularly, uh, and this is where the projected population growth will be uh, over that time. Uh, The darker blue, the bigger the population growth. Yellow or green means there's shrinkage in the population, much of Europe, for example. What this means is that by the end of this century, and I think when we look at this, think about this in terms of where we should be trading, where we should be investing our diplomatic activities, where we should be investing our cultural activities, the population when most people in this audience roughly were born, uh, we had a situation where 21% of the world's population were European and 9% were African. Asia has always had a large population. By the time we moved to the end of the century, a third of the world's population will be African. Europe will be around 7% of the world's population. Asia is still quite a major issue. I think this does give us some pause for thought about thinking where is going to be important for us uh, in, in the, in the not-too-distant future. This is most people's children's generation. Now, I don't want him to get into the debate about uh, what is the optimum population size. There are some very good reasons you want families to be small, because it's good for mothers, it's good for the children, it's good for the economy, it's good for everything. That's good. There are also good environmental arguments, having small populations. But one thing I do not want to get into is a some Malthusian idea that actually we're going to run out of food or a whole variety of other things. When you look at the science of this, it just doesn't stack up. And I'm just going to make a slightly facile point, but I think I I have have from time to time had people say to me, well, Africa's clearly going to run out of land. Africa is a big place. This is a nice economist map, which is superimposed, correct scale, a whole variety of other continents and countries on the map of Africa, just so you can get a feel for it. Each one of these has got a population, uh, most of these, rather, have got a population roughly the same size as Africa. India has, for example, China has, in terms of population now. African uh, agriculture is enormously inefficient at the moment. You could increase uh, even currently uh, cultivated land. You could increase the productivity by forty percent because of a forty percent yield gap immediately just by changing things. So I think I think a lot of the concerns that we're going to run out of uh, what's needed for the human population are exaggerated. There are clearly some major environmental and other issues, but I just wanted to uh, I didn't want to brush that point aside, but I don't want to go into it in any great uh, uh, length. And just to back that up, this is the population density at the moment uh, per head of population. Most of the highly dense parts of the world have a population that is stabilising or even shrinking now. As countries go through the um, demographic transition, they potentially can benefit from what's called the demographic dividend. And the demographic dividend is where you have a situation where you start off with every employed adult has a large number of dependents, most of whom are children. There's then a period when the population working age significantly increases, the number of children per population significantly decreases, and you haven't yet got to the point where you've got lots of elderly people. So you've actually got a very good ratio of working people to dependent people economically. And this can be an extremely powerful driver if it's properly harnessed. It was harnessed, for example, by the UK when it went through its demographic dividend. It is being harnessed at the moment by China, and I'll be able to demonstrate that. But it is not inevitable. I want to be clear about that, and I'll come on to some examples where it's not inevitable at the moment. But that, this change, therefore, gives people a once-in-history opportunity to economically develop. So this demographic transition is extremely important if a country is to harness it. And they can either end up with a very uh, rapidly advancing economy because they've got a very large portion of the economy employed, or if they have the wrong economic environment, they can end up with a very large number of unemployed young people. So this is not... Demo, you know, demography is not destiny, but it does set parameters around which can, things can work. So to illustrate this... Uh, let's take Latin America and the Caribbean. This is the this is the population pyramid for this. And through these, the rest of this talk, I'm going to show a lot of population pyramids. So I'm going to talk you through these. They're very easy to understand, but I'm just going to talk you through once. The idea of a population pyramid is you have uh, in five-year uh, bands, and all of the ones I'm going to show are either from the UK ONS or from the uh, UN uh, Population Division. Uh, and um, You go up in five age bands, and it's just the total number of people in the uh, population uh, at this point in time, uh, in those bands. This is Latin America in 2030, and the one on the right is Latin America in 2050. What's gonna happen? If you look at these situations, for the next probably 40 years, in Latin America, there is a relatively small number of elderly people, and a shrinking number of children. So in Latin America, the great bulk of the population is now in employment age. So there's every opportunity, if things go well, for these countries rapidly to develop economically over the next few decades. It's not inevitable, but this sets a possibility. The final general point I wanted to make before I start moving on to uh, continents and then countries uh, is something about migrants. This is one of three slides I put in about migrants. And the first is to say there are a very small number of countries where migration really does massively affect the population in terms of its structure, but they're very small number. And I've taken an extreme example of Bahrain. Here, uh, what you see is a very large bulge here on only one side, and that is because these, all the people on this to the left of this, all of these people are migrant male workers who come in as young adults and then leave at the end of their working lives. So this will always be, until Bahrain changes its structure, its, its society, this is gonna be the population structure of Bahrain. But this is very atypical. Much more important than external migration, which I know is the thing which tends to exercise uh, uh, the, some bits of the media, uh, but much more important in terms of actual demography is internal migration. And the point I want to make, and these are data from the UK, is that internal migration is a band of age from around 18 through to uh, mid-40s mid to 50s. So there's huge migration within countries, and I'll come on to the implications of that, in that age band. And you can get big shifts across countries without any internal, external migration. This is not international migration, uh, but it's in this band when people are economically productive, they tend to move. And superimposed on this is the population structure of the UK as a whole, which we'll come on to in much greater detail in the third section of this talk. So those are the general points I wanted to make uh, about demography. Let's move on to um, uh, individual continents and countries. This is the United States, probably the most stable population structure of any of the ones I will show you and of any of the major countries. So this is the United States in 2014, that's this year, or last last year, and this is the United States in 2030. Remarkably little shift, just ages a bit, but the population structure looks pretty similar. That is the exception, as we'll come on to. Sub-Saharan Africa still has a population structure, and there are three basic population structures which I'm going to show, and one of them is of a developing country where there is not yet... People have not gone through the demographic transition, and therefore every generation is going to have more children than the last. And because they're not dying yet, they're not dying. Uh, they, of course, that means the population is going to increase. So the population pyramid of Sub-Saharan Africa in 2030 and 2050 on the right, still a pyramid, although it is beginning to pull in a bit at the edges. But this is this is what it, a population looks like for a poor country or a country without contraception. Although I've illustrated with the continent. Uh, this is a, con- this a continent going through the demographic transition. This is South Asia in this case, and here you can see, as, I, as with Latin America, large bulk of the people working age adults, very small number of, of elderly people and an, a shrinking number of children. And finally, uh, illustrated by Europe, an ageing population, where actually what we've got for a while, we had much smaller numbers of uh, children, not below replacement uh, demography. At the moment, we have a situation, all of the people below the line that I'm drawing here, below 65, are currently in employment, if, there's a, if they've got a job to go to. But we've already got quite a large number of elderly people who are retired. They may be completely well, but they're retired. When you look forward to 2050, uh, in this particular period, uh, you lead to a very large bulge of elderly people, much greater than you got at the moment, a higher proportion. So those are the three basic structures. Now what does that mean in terms of the um, uh, dependency ratios? And I'm, I'll show a few countries specifically, but clockwise from the top, this is Western Europe, and all of these run from 1980 through to 2050. And I think that the projections up to 2050 for demography are pretty reliable. Unlike economic forecasting, because demography changes quite slowly, generation on generation, the projections are pretty uh, safe. The blue is number of children, and the red is number of adults. And what you can see uh, from Western Europe is that at the moment, we're here. We're at a situation where the dependency ratio, so-called, is 50, which is a good number to have. But over time, over the next uh, 20 years, that dependency ratio is steadily going to increase in Europe because of increasing numbers of elderly people. Africa, on the other hand, has got a very large dependency ratio, currently higher than Europe, but that's almost all made up of dependent children. But over this next 20 years, that's gradually going to drop. The elderly are not yet going to come through the system. They will in uh, 40, 50 years, but they won't yet. And so Africa's dependency ratio will, by the end of this time, by 2050, actually be better than Europe's. Uh, turning and here to India, India has still got a transitioning phase and is now moving to a situation where its dependency ratio will be fairly flat at around 45, which again is pretty good, 100 is basically uh, problematic. Uh, but what's happening is the number of children is going down but the number of adults is beginning to go up, of elderly adults beginning to go up. And finally on the left, and I'll come back to this, is China. China has had, because of its one-child policy amongst other things, had a dramatic drop in its dependency ratio, which is reaching its bottom about now. From here on in, dependency ratios in China are going to sharply increase. And by the time we get up to uh, 2050, the dependency ratios in China will be very high, and I'll, I'll show China in more detail. So these are dependency ratios around the world. Now let's just show a few individual countries. Um, starting, uh, obviously, with the United Kingdom. Um, The United Kingdom actually has a relatively, by European standards, stable population pyramid. All of these, what I'm showing is 20, unless I say otherwise, 2010 on the left and 2030 on the right. And what you can see is the population of the UK does age a bit over that time, but the population below it looks pretty stable. That's actually largely due to migration, but not exclusively. Compare that to Germany. So Germany has currently got a large bulge of people in the uh, employed years between uh, 39 and 55. But of course those people are increasing in age. By the time we get to 2030, this population is going to begin to retire. And from then on, Germany will have a very high dependency ratio largely consisting of elderly people. So, what you'll see what you see is that the UK moves up in terms of its dependency ratio much more gradually than Germany does. And this is something which I'm sure worries German policymakers. If we look at some other countries, France has got a population pyramid very similar to our own, but let's look at a few others. That's Italy. And here is Spain and Greece. If you want any evidence that a demographic dividend is not an automatic process, look at Greece. You just need to read the newspapers to realise the difficulties Greece has got. And yet it's got a phenomenal, if you're looking at the demography, demographic dividend in the sense that the big bulk of the population are aged between 20 uh, and 60. But if you haven't got employment, that doesn't do you much good. If you're a Greek policymaker, thinking about what's going to happen when these people retire I think is something you'd have to think very seriously about. And the result of that is that, although the UK is ageing, actually, because of its population pyramid being quite stable, it's over time becoming moving from one of the oldest populations in Europe to one of the youngest populations in Europe. This is uh, twenty. Uh, this is from um, uh, 1985. Red is the UK. That's uh, around about now. And by the time we get down to 2035, I'll still be employed. Then, uh, Europe has actually moved significantly and overtaken us. And we we are, although older, so we've moved from uh, 17 um, uh, up to 23% of the population over 65. uh, We've become one of the youngest countries in the continent. Even more dramatic are countries like Japan, which have been in this situation for longer. This is Japan in now, and this is Japan in 2030. Imagine you're Prime Minister then. That, 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 that bulge is about to, uh, at that point, uh, retire. And the same would be true for South Korea, for example. Here's China, a country of enormous uh, importance geopolitically, uh, currently, it has a large population, the great majority of whom are in working age. This is very good for them, and they've made real use of it. The way that the, the economy in, Ch- in China is constructed really makes use of this large bulk of working-age people. But once we get out to 2030, some of those are beginning to retire. And if you take it out to 2050, we've got a, sort of, we've got a kind of a C-liner uh, structure to the Chinese population, which is going to be a very, very different China to the one that's here. Who is going to look after all these people in a society which has traditionally been quite resistant to migration? So you have this very sharp change in the demographic profile and therefore the dependency ratio in China. India, on the other hand, throughout this period, is going to have, a very, is going to have an increasingly satisfactory dependency ratio. And therefore, over the whole period, we expect that actually things, from that point of view, will look better for India. It doesn't mean things will go well, but at least there's every opportunity for India to develop over this period. And here's Bangladesh, which has gone through the demographic transition much more sharply than India, uh, and it really, over the next 40 years, has got an extraordinarily favourable profile again. Brazil. Brazil also in good shape for the next few decades. Nigeria, unfortunately, is the other end extreme, Uh, and uh, our hope is, of course, that we can start to improve uh, the uh, availability of contraception in Nigeria. Doing that would make an enormous difference, uh, particularly in the north. But not every country in Africa is like that. Let's just take a couple of examples. Ethiopia, for example, has now, has now really got to the point where it's got almost to replacement levels of fertility. Its population is going to shift in much the same way as some of the other ones, and the same will be true, for example, of Rwanda. And here's South Africa, and I put this in partly to demonstrate a very developed African country, uh, but also to demonstrate uh, there's a missing bit here, and that missing bit is HIV. HIV, because it affects women more than men, has massively affected the demography of southern Africa. And if I take a very extreme example, this is what uh, Botswana would have looked like, the light blue, and what Botswana does look like, projecting forward to 2020, just due to HIV. An astonishing and very, very tragic reaction. Botswana, of course, has the highest HIV rates in Africa, so this is an extreme example, but it, it can be replicated elsewhere. Moving on to some of the countries that people worry about, uh, Russia has a very weird demographic profile. Not the weirdest I'm going to show you, but pretty weird. Um, And what you can see is that there is currently a very large proportion of the Russian population which is in working-stroke-military-stroke-computer-hacking age. Uh, But that that situation is going to shift uh, quite a bit uh, as we look through um, the next 20 years. And Iran is even more more, more striking, really. This is Iran now. Uh, This is military uh, age. Um, I would put this as an aggressive age, particularly for a boy. Um, But they become, by 2030, this particular population bulge become parents. And by 2050, there's one bulge at grandparental age and one bulge at, at parental age. Will Iran feel the same as a neighbor in that situation? My guess is not. Again, it doesn't predict, but at least it puts bounds around what is possible. So these changing demographic profiles, I think, are things we should take quite a lot of uh, notice of when thinking about how things are going to look. And this is the uh, dependency ratio in Iran. It looks terribly good until about 2050, and then it essentially falls off a cliff very fast. Syria, I've just put it in because it's topical. Afghanistan doesn't look great. This is 2030, but actually, again, the dependency ratio is currently around 100. some one of the worst in the world. are going are to drop steadily uh, right out through almost the rest of this century. And finally, Zimbabwe. Uh, Zimbabwe again demonstrates the scalloping out of HIV. I also want to demonstrate in most countries... Uh, the uh, leaders of the country are um, quite significantly in the bunched up, including our own country, in the middle of the demographic. Uh, this is the population of uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, this is the leadership of Zimbabwe. Uh, they're quite disconnected demographically, and I think that explains quite a number of things. Right, moving on to the UK. Um, I wanted to sort of start off with a historical slant on this and then move on to what I see to be the future of this. Well, not what I see to be the future, but what I think will be the future, and then ask some questions about what we can do about it. Um, this is the demographic profile for the UK in 1911. So this is the height of empire. It looks remarkably similar to a poor country today. This, course, is in the pre-contraception era in terms of modern contraceptions. The first point I wanted to make, and this is uh, courtesy of census data, and they've done the, the coloring in for me um, very helpfully, is to look at the effect of World War I, which uh, you can still feel in, in our demography. This bit of the graph here and the males on the left, carved out by uh, World War I, killed. Females much less affected in that war. But actually the much more striking thing demographically is because the men were away, away working or at war, almost no babies were born, uh, but people certainly made up for lost time uh, immediately afterwards, and you got the first major baby boom. If you go back on to 1950, you can actually still see the the scalloping out of World War I and the baby boom of World War I, but you can also see the second baby boom that came after the Second World War. And when people talk about baby boomers, that is, not an exa- that is a, a fair statement demographically. Uh, this is this population, uh, baby boomers, and they're just hitting retirement now. Final general point before I move on to some specifics is about migration. And I'm going to use London as the example, partly because we're based in London, partly because London's got the most extreme thing. An enormous proportion of the population of London is constantly turning over. People may not realise that, but that is actually the reality. But the age at which they do this is highly stereotyped, it's not random. They first move out of London, so down is out. Um, They first move out of London aged 18. They go to college, they go to university, they go to their first job. Then they come back and they move into London until they have their first or second child, at which point they move out again. And then they stay out. That's happened for, generation, for for decades. What it does, though, is it keeps London, and I'm going to show this, forever young, and exports age. It's rather like the picture of Dorian Gray, but without the immorality, obviously. <laughs> uh, so London stays young, and the rest of the country ages faster than the overall numbers in the country would predict. And the net flow, this is net flow from cities, is from the north and centre into London to get a job, so two-thirds of graduates move to London. And then net movement of people when they first have their families, or if they don't have a family when they retire, out of London southwards. Now what that means, if you look at the demographic profile of London versus England, this is data from around now. I've gone forward a couple of years because I want to compare it to uh, some years later. This is the population of England as it currently looks. I want you to notice, with all of these, this bit at the, at the top. That's people over the age of 90, that bar at the top. They didn't keep on counting. Look at London, and it's got kind of middle-age spread. But actually, the middle-age spread is, in fact, young people. So London is a lot, long, lot younger than the rest of the UK. Now, if you project forward 20 years to 2037, 37, which is the reason I chose 17, London looks remarkably similar, because it's exporting all its age. But the rest of the UK gets a lot older, and in particular, look at this bar at the top. Those are the over-90s, or the rest of England in this case. So a significant exportation of age to other bits of the country. And the the closer you get to the centre of London, the more marked this is. So this is inner London on the left. And this is outer London on the right. The blue wavy lines are the U.K. projected on the top, so you can just compare to what the overall looks like. And moving in a bit closer still, Wandsworth on the, le- on the left. Uh, city of London's always a bit strange for whole heaps of reasons, but demographic is one of them, uh, but that's because of the particular kind of the, the kind of uh, um, working environment here. Uh, but I put it in because we're in the city of London, so I thought you'd like to see what you look like. And it's not just London. So there are a number of other cities, a lot of other cities have exactly the same profile uh, and university towns do the same. So this is Oxford on the left. On the right I've put Nottingham where I'm comparing the red is Nottingham and the blue is the rest of the UK. That's just to compare it. And so there are many other cities where I could have repeated this. I've just chosen those ones. Finally, just before I move on to uh, some of the other forward projections, a bit about migration. Uh, Migration in the UK is not... Uh, homogeneous it's extremely concentrated in certain places so on the left here I put a map of all the people born in central or west Africa and where they live and as you can see very few live outside the M25 if you moved on to South Asians it's a bit more widely scattered but even there it's very very highly concentrated Now, the problem about some areas being universally young is the elderly people have got to go somewhere, uh, one hopes. Um, And uh, these are just two examples. I could have chosen many others. Uh, I've chosen Rother and Chichester. Again, with the UK superimposed, these ones here have got a very thin waistline, but their elderly population, so anything uh, above this line here, is retired. Is significantly above what you'd expect and so what this means is even now there is a big difference between in every part of the UK and I'm just going to show north south east and west just so you can see this isn't a London issue Uh, this on the left is Northumberland this on the right is Newcastle upon Tyne project forward uh, another 20 years or so, just over uh, just 22 years. The rest of Northumberland, huge increase in elderly. But Newcastle keeps its nice bulge in the middle. It's got a large number of young people. Here's North Norfolk, East Devon, two relatively rural areas. 2012, already looking a bit old, a little bit thin on the uh, people who are of working age. Project forward um, uh, again to 2037, and you've got the great majority in some areas of people will be retired. And many of them... Look at these bars at the top. Those are the over-90s. What that means, therefore, is uh, a few things. So let's start off with the population aged over 85, just just in terms of uh, the uh, population. If you compare 1992... There really were only a very small number of places in the UK where there were significant uh, concentrations of population over the age of 85. In 2015, uh, that number has increased quite a lot, and it's across the whole of the UK. Scotland is actually aging slightly faster than England, um, Wales is as well. Um, the, the gold I've put in on all these is Southwark. I've just done that to mark where you, you all are. Uh, you can't. And if you look forward to 2033, uh, this is what it looks like. So I'm just going to click back. That, I just remember that. That's, just, that's only 20 years away. So that's where we were in 1992. So this ageing of the population uh, is huge, but it, it spares the urban areas. It's everywhere else. And therefore, everywhere else ages a lot faster than you'd predict from average numbers. So, if you look at the UK along this black line, the UK pop- population age over this timeline is gradually increasing. But Southwark carries happily on, keeping exactly the same age as it's got now. And I think possibly even more concerningly is when you look at the age, what I would, what's called the age support ratio. This is people of working age. Ratio to people who are retired, and someone has got to look. You know, someone's got to provide the services for, look after, do the medical services for, etc. Uh, these elderly people. In 20, and uh, in this situation, uh, persons of working age to state pension age dark is good. So at this point in time, very heavy, uh, high working age to retired age. If you're in or around London or one or two of the other bigger conurbations. But it gets pretty light in many of the other areas. And if you look at the UK gradual drift round, actually uh, Southwark and areas like this will actually get better for the next short while. But I'd just like to compare uh, 1993 uh, on the left uh, with what it's going to look like uh, in 2033. And the point I'm making with this one is that the age-dependency ratio was very heavily distributed across all of the UK really quite recently. So almost anywhere in the UK, there were many more young people than retired people able to provide them all the services they need. As we look forward to not too far in the future, within the working lives of many people in the audience, we reach a situation where actually only in the conurbations are the ratios very good? So for me, the big worry for the UK is not that the UK is ageing. That is fine. People are getting healthier and a variety of other things. It's that the concentration of age and youth are drifting further and further apart, with a very heavy concentration of the elderly in large areas with very small working populations and then very high concentrations of young people in the conurbations and a few other places. Think about these social policies, and this incidentally this, if we projected on, would get even more severe if we went further further forward another twenty years. So the policy implications in my view of this are very profound, and i do uh, i do have i have to say I have some concerns about it so thinking through this uh, talk. Um, you know, the title of this series, which we'll be carrying on next year, I'll be thinking particularly through um, some of the issues of health in the very elderly, and the next talk I'll be thinking particularly about uh, people in their first 28 days. Improving health at the extremes of age uh, is one of the great challenges of our generation, and uh, there are, I think the one on neonatal health, I think there's every reason to think things are getting better. I think on elderly care, I think we've got a way to go. We must remember that one in three children born this year will reach 100 years old, one in three. The opportunity, economics and stability of the international world in which they live will be profoundly affected by the huge demographic shifts. And I just demonstrated a few, but you could have gone through any country in the world and you'd see how different it looks compared to when you were born now and the point when you'll reach uh, your natural end, whenever that may be. Health drives demography, so three of the major drivers are uh, health-related, but demography also has big implications for health, and I would say in particular this concentration of age and youth being increasingly separated in this country has really serious implications for how we're going to deliver healthcare uh, in the longer term. Who and, who and where will care for these people in their old age I think is something we need to give some quite profound thought to. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to gresham.ac.uk.